conclude this phase of our study tonight. We look forward to the last phase of this discipleship ministry. We pray that you will give us anticipation and realization of that which you want to do, both in and through our lives. We'll give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. May I say that um, we have uh, given out, I hope, a set of notes tonight um, that uh, gives to you the uh, the entire study, um, the finishing up of the study. Uh, if you don't have the complete set of notes, those are available, and uh, we would like to urge you to have those because tonight we will complete uh, the second phase of a three-phase study on the subject of discipleship. You realize that we studied discipleship, first of all, in the Gospels, seeing how Christ discipled men, uh, making very clear the fact that uh, uh, he discipled men to himself. And uh, there's no place in Scripture where, where uh, a person, after the time of Christ, where a person was discipled to another man. He was to be discipled to Jesus Christ. We can, when it says in the Great Commission that we are to make disciples, it does not mean that we are to have followers or that we are to have people following us. But rather, it means that we are to seek to make those individuals uh, become disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the Gospels, we stress the various aspects of the subject of discipleship, uh, the, the way Christ trained his men, the way he prepared them for various kinds of crisis, the various demands and dividends uh, of discipleship, uh, the skeleton outline of all of that is in your notes. Now, the second phase, and the one that we complete tonight, is we went to the book of Acts, and particularly centering our thoughts around those passages of Scripture that use the term disciples, uh, we sought to find a number of areas where discipleship was carried out. We confirmed our findings in the Gospels. The men that were the, the apostles and uh, the disciples that were spoken of as having ministries in the early church did not disciple men to themselves, but rather discipled them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so therefore, once again, we had the privilege of looking at at the way this discipleship training of the Lord was carried out in a practical way and then perpetuated in the lives of other people. So therefore, uh, we have seen a number of subjects. We've seen how uh, they were related to the Spirit of God and how they were related to uh, the, the matter of, of uh, suffering. We saw that last week. Uh, we saw how they were related to the subject of separation, the subject of schism, uh, the, the problems that uh, they would run into in various uh, conflicts in their own life, the uh, relationship that they had in society, and uh, uh, the subject of salvation or soteriology. Uh, we, we tried to cover as much as we could of uh, the subject of discipleship in the book of Acts. Now tonight we're going to sub, uh, study the subject of discipleship and strife from one particular passage. But before we do, we want to uh, mention to you that next week uh, you're going to have a very special treat. Uh, Bud Schaefer uh, is going to minister to you. 
uh, and uh, be sharing with you some exciting report uh, relative to his missionary work. And so that will be next Wednesday night. The following Wednesday, we will embark on the third phase of this discipleship study. The purpose of that third phase will be simply to give to you the, the tools, first of all, as to what you ought to be in your own lives in order that you might be effective in discipling others. But then we're going to take you step by step what you might do, and of course, how you use it is up to you, and uh, you can vary it however you feel is necessary. It should be built into your own presentation anyway. But we're going to take you uh, step by step through a series of appointments you might have with a person you've led to Christ, where you take him from assurance of salvation. Uh, after you've led him to Christ, you take him from assurance of salvation, talk to him about dealing with sin, how to have victory in his life, talk about the, the matter of of a relationship with the church, how to have a quiet time, how to learn to pray effectively. Uh, some of these very practical subjects. And what we want to do is outline those for you uh, and, uh, and give to you uh, a number of, of, of little helps along the way that will enable you to sit down with a new convert and, uh, and actually uh, put your, uh, your money where your mouth is. You can talk about being a discipler of men, but you're really not a discipler of men and women unless you are actually going through some kind of progressive steps leading them to a certain level of maturity in Christ so that they become, in turn, reproducers who are able not only to reproduce in the sense of bringing others to Christ, but reproduce that which would become ultimately a mature Christian. A new believers should learn not only how to win someone to Christ, but should also learn how he can take that person and uh, begin to minister to him and help him through the various difficulties and crises that he'll face. Now, the, the, the uh, uh, tenor of your, of your discipleship appointments will differ uh, depending on the individual, depending on the person. There'll be some individuals who'll be more aggressive than others in seeking to fulfill uh, their responsibility. But we'll be talking about what we think is an acceptable uh, outline that at least give you a guideline. I don't, I don't know about you, but I never find anything uh, that I use verbatim. I might uh, copy somebody else's uh, basic outline in uh, some area, but I always change it, uh, put it in my own words, and change it to suit uh, my own personality, my own presentation, uh, because uh, I'm more comfortable with it when I've made it mine. And anything we might give you, I think the important thing is to realize that uh, one of the reasons, personally, that I don't, uh, I don't pursue the idea of copywriting material that we give is because I would hope that uh, if I give anything worth having, that you can use it as something of a basis, that you can change it to suit yourself, and that ultimately you'll be able then uh, to, to put it in your own words and, and have it be a part of your own life and be able to use it. And so we hope that that's what you'll do with what we present. I'm sure that many of you will produce a better, uh, a better uh, list of things to do in discipling men than I could, uh, but I hope we can at least stimulate your thinking along that line. So that'll begin two weeks from tonight, and we just want to encourage you to be here and be prepared, and we're going to have to move some of, through some of this material rather rapidly, uh, hoping to finish this series up in June. So we hope that uh, you'll be 
uh, bearing with us. One of the things we're going to do that's a little change, and that is we have been giving you uh, notes uh, after we have brought the message each time, sometimes several weeks after, uh, but we're going to, during this series, because of the, the fact that we want you to take this uh, we want you to take these notes and we want you to add your own notes and add your own ideas on it. Uh, we're going to try and put that into your hands um, uh, night by night uh, as we're studying it so that you'll be able to work with it. All right. Now, we want you to turn tonight to the last of these subjects uh, that we're seeing in the book of Acts relative to discipleship and turn to Acts chapter 6. That is a very logical place to turn, for this was really the first strife that came into the ministry of that primitive church in the city of Jerusalem uh, shortly after the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the ministry there. We want you to um, notice a number of things about uh, this little passage. We're going to read it, and as we read it, you might keep in mind uh, four things that we want to be looking for in the text. First of all, the background and the setting. We want to see something of, of that in the context. And then the problem that arose, or the strife. Thirdly, we want to see that the, the way that the problem was handled, or the solution... And then finally, the results of what was accomplished, and that we would call success. The success of dealing with this strife. So these four things we want to look for. Let's begin in verse 1. And in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily menstruation. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them, and said, It is not fitting that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look among you for seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and uh, Pro 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 uh, Chorus, and uh, Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, the first thing that we want to see, then, is the matter of the setting. Of course, it's set up for us here with the words, and in those days, incidentally, giving us another major division of the book of Acts. And it says, when the number of the disciples was multiplied. Now, we can go back in the book of Acts, and we can see that there are some distinctive things about those days. First of all, we could say that these were those days were days of power. In Acts chapter 4, verse 33, we read these words, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, incidentally, you remember that the promise of Acts 1.8 was, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And this was a natural fulfillment 
of that which had been promised. So there was, it was a time, surely, of power. In the fifth chapter, in verse 28, we can't help but notice that it was also a time of proclamation. It says, saying, Did we not strictly command that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. It was a day of proclamation. They had filled all Jerusalem with that doctrine. Would to God that we had that kind of effectiveness in our day and age. to Where the community would accuse the people of Valley Church of filling the community with their doctrine. May God grant that such a thing will take place. It was also time of persecution. Look back at Acts 4, verses 1 through 4. We read these words. And as they spoke unto the people, the priests, and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus, or literally in the case of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody even the next day, even unto the next day, for it was now evening tide. And many of them who heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. Also over in Acts chapter 5, verse 17, it tells us concerning uh, more persecution. We won't take time to read all of that except to read just a bit of it. The high priest, verse 17, rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, were filled with indignation. They laid hands on the apostles, put them in common prison. Then it goes clear down through verse 28, describing their imprisonment and the command that they gave not to teach in the name of Jesus Christ. All right, so there were days of power and proclamation and persecution, but there were also days, obviously, of progress. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we read these words. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. And the multitude of those that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither said any of them that any of the things which he owned was his own. They had all things in common, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection, and so on. Now, again, we, we have the obvious fact that the church of Jesus Christ, from the very beginning after the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was forward progress. There were days of power and proclamation, persecution, and progress. Now, it also was not only a, a time of multiplied disciples, but it was obvious that there were multiplied numbers. Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, there were 120 people in the upper room. The day of Pentecost, in the second chapter of Acts, verse 41, there were added to the church 3,000 souls. Afterward, there were others that were added. But after the miracle of Peter in the temple, uh, the man that he healed there at the temple in the fourth chapter of Acts, it tells us that there were 5,000 more that were added to the church. Now, incidentally, I think we should understand and realize that those individuals that think in terms of small little house churches in the book of Acts uh, forget the fact that these disciples apparently, at least in the early part, met in, in central locations, and there were at least 8,000 of them. That's a pretty good-sized church. 
much larger than, shall we say, the average church today. The average church in the United States today is about 200 people. Did you know that? And uh, so therefore, the church of the book of Acts was much larger than that. There's no indication, even though it says they went from house to house, there's no indication that their, their major uh, meeting responsibility was, was uh, anything but a very large meeting. You remember in the case of Paul preaching when Eutychus fell out of the balcony, uh, it was at, at a meeting where the room was so crowded and packed with people uh, that uh, he had to be hanging from the rafters practically, and when he fell asleep, which you shouldn't do when a preacher's preaching anyway, he fell down and was killed and uh, had to be raised from the dead. So there, there's an indication that the church, is, that the church at least at this time, uh, had not split off and divided. It was a persecution later on that came that scattered them, as we saw last week. So there's nothing wrong uh, from the Scripture uh, concerning the, uh, the, the large church. And uh, God never tells us how large or how small a church should be. If you want to use the book of Acts as a criteria, you start with 8,000. And then uh, that should be about your third week. Then you go from there. And uh, we'll see about that, huh? But the Lord was blessing to that extreme in those days. Now in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it speaks of the fact that there were multitudes. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, it spoke of multitudes. There was an increase of disciples, and they had a multiplying ministry. And uh, a multiplying ministry, the increase of numbers, meant an increase of people. And with more people, there is more potential for strife. Now don't forget that. Keep that in the back of your mind. Whenever you start thinking in terms of, uh, of the, various, the various problems that arise in churches today, and you think in terms of the fact that, that even in the early church, with the purity of doctrine that they had, with the freshness and the fresh glow of their spiritual life and all of the rest, Yet very early in that church's history, a strife arose. And it primarily arose because you have a proliferation of people with different backgrounds, different cultures, different viewpoints, different needs, and they become a sort of a, a rather homogeneous group of people. They come together around one common thing, their faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, they begin from that point to find relationships in other areas. But they also find differences in a lot of areas. We need to have that centrality of the message of Jesus Christ, the basic, the basic doctrine of the, of the New Testament, which is called the good news or the gospel, which has to do with the, the, the life, death, resurrection, uh, uh, and ascension, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the central message. But remember that outside there are, uh, there, there are the people who come to Christ with very little in common with some of the other people in a local church. Hence, the potential for strife increases with the potential of growth. A church cannot escape differences of opinion as a church grows. Now, there are, some, there are some groups of people who have their little exclusive group. And they give you a, a list of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 things that you cannot do and 10 things that you can do. 
And as long as you stay within those guidelines, then they have able to sing without any qualification at all. What a fellowship, what a joy divine, leaning on, well, not the everlasting arms, I'm afraid, leaning on the rules we've set up that it draws together. And you see, when you have that kind of a system, it does do something. It gives you artificial unity. Because they don't let anybody in unless he agrees to this. And because, he, he, because everybody agrees to that, it minimizes the strife within a fellowship. But when you treat it biblically and have the Word of God as our only center, uh, Christ as our only center, and the Word of God as our only rule of faith and practice, and we realize that there can be some differences of thinking in reference, in reference to the Word of God, you increase the matter of strife and the potential of strife when you treat it the way God treats it. Now, whenever there's strife, though, it has to be dealt with. And the, the point that is made, not only here but other places in Scripture, is that it falls to the lot of the leadership of the church to deal with the differences and the problems that do arise. It becomes a big task. It becomes a big job. And I think you'd probably be surprised at the amount of time that the leadership of Valley Church has to spend, not only in discussion, but in dealing and counseling with, with people who have a little bit of differences, a little bit of problem, a little bit of problem with other personalities, a little bit of problem um, with, with various doctrinal questions and this kind of thing. It's amazing, really, to see how much of this has to be dealt with. Usually it's dealt with discreetly and privately in the spirit of Matthew 18 and in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, Ye that are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Over and over again, you deal with problems along this line. And that's what happened, really, here in the book of Acts. Church of Jerusalem was a melting pot. And with the increase of people, there came an increase of tension and problem and difficulty. Now the strife itself is described. It says that there arose a murmuring. Two particular groups uh, that were involved, one side murmuring, the other side apparently getting the heavy end of the stick or the better end of the stick, whichever. And uh, it was the Grecians murmuring against the Hebrews. Now the word murmuring here is the word G-O-N. G-U-S-M-O-S. Gongusmas. And we get our English word gong from that root. It basically means private grumbling. Uh, the reason our idea of gong comes is because uh, it, it is uh, considered to be or was considered to be by those that uh, grabbed hold of this Greek word in making the English language, uh, a gong is considered to be a muffled tone as opposed to a bell which gives a bright tone. And so therefore the muffled tone is the concept of the word. It's a low tone and it was a word that was used of the Greek philosophers to speak of secret debates. This was not something where they were going, in fact they were not following the aspect of Matthew 18 and dealing with this as they should have in going uh, to, uh, to the people uh, themselves where they were offended and, and uh, speaking to them and then bringing a witness and uh, taking it up the ladder you know, the way God tells us to in that passage, the way Christ tells us to. But uh, rather it was an under the rug kind of thing. 
the worst possible kind of situation where there was murmuring and grumbling, not articulated. Nobody was really saying anything. There were no, there were no uh, direct accusations giving, but it was a murmur. It was just a quiet little rumbling, little bit of gossip going on within the ranks. Now, that's always wrong, as you can find from Scripture. Uh, you go through the book of Proverbs as an example, and you, you, you discover over and over again the, the warning concerning this kind of insidious uh, sort of, of gossip. Uh, you, uh, you, you find, uh, for instance, in the book of First uh, Peter that there, there is, uh, using the word, uh, uh, the, the basic root of the word is the word episkopos, which means an overseer. The Greek word is allotrio episkopos, and it basically means to, to make yourself or set yourself up as an overseer over other, other men's matters. It basically means in the vernacular to stick your nose where it doesn't belong, in somebody else's business. And uh, there's a lot of that that goes on in the fellowship of the church. It's wrong. It needs to be dealt with. And, of course, the problem is a lot of times it, it leads to uh, some other things uh, and uh, bitterness that can arise uh, before it's known by the leadership of the church so that they can adequately deal with it. Now the difficulty was this. There were Hellenistic Jews and there were Her he Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic Jews were of course those Jews who probably had their residence permanently in the city of Jerusalem and uh, they spoke Hebrew uh, they spoke Aramaic, and they spoke Greek as well. Uh, but then there, the, the Hellenistic Jews were a multicultured people. What happened was that when Alexander the Great conquered the world for all practical purposes, he recognized the skill in government of the various uh, Jewish people. And so therefore, wherever he went in his campaigns, he took with him uh, Jewish men and their families. And when he would conquer a city, he would place in charge of that city a Jew. And the Jew would set up the Greek government in that city. So you had Greeks, uh, excuse me, you had Jews that were spread throughout the Greek world. They were called Hellenistic Jews. That's why when the Apostle Paul went around Europe and Asia, he found synagogues in a lot of places. Simply because the Jews, if they had nine men, they could build a synagogue. And there were more than nine men in many cases through the generations that had passed since Alexander the Great. These were the Hellenistic Jews. That's why, of course, in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it lists the various cultural groups that these people had come from. They were Jews there in the city of Jerusalem for the purpose of, uh, of, having, uh, of celebrating the day of Pentecost and, uh, and yet, when they, when they heard the gospel, remember, they heard it in their own language. And many of those languages were obscure, obscure languages from clear off in the, in the hill country and up above the Caspian Sea and the, above the Black Sea and, and uh, in remote areas, uh, even in Arabia uh, and uh, places like that, where they spoke uh, uh, Coptic and they spoke uh, various other kinds of, of languages. And uh, that's, of course, the miracle of the day of Pentecost was that as people witnessed, God gave them utterance to speak to that person, not in the Jewish language, which they would understand, but to speak in staccato languages as Isaiah had prophesied they would. Now, in this particular case, the people, of course, had different cultures. 
they had language differences. It's uh, also true that in their midst already had mixed some Jewish proselytes that had been converted to Judaism as a result of the ministry of these various uh, of these various people. It's obvious that some of these people, though they did not uh, have their residence in the city of Jerusalem, they were from this other these other cultures. They took up their residence at least temporarily in the city of Jerusalem because that's where they heard the gospel of the grace of God. Now you remember that in Acts chapter two there was a pooling of resources. There was a pooling of the resources and a distribution as every man had need. Now the actual situation was that there had been real neglect. There had been racial discrimination, or at least cultural discrimination. And uh, the problem was that there was a genuine problem, a genuine need that was not being met, right? Now there's nothing wrong with that need existing because it gives the people within the body of Christ the opportunity to respond. But you see, instead of trusting the Lord for it and really uh, trying to see that need met by mutual love, there was murmuring. And you see, the murmuring and the complaint has a way of multiplying. And I want you to look over at Hebrews chapter 12, where it shows us really what happens next when after we murmur and complain. It says, follow peace, verse 14 of Hebrews 12, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and by it many be defiled. When there's a need, and you take the second step of murmuring, then there is naturally, eventually, the bitterness, and ultimately, we could say that it infects the whole congregation. Many are defiled. And this is what they were well on their way to having in that early church. Now, of course, the reason that we're interested in this is because we, we as believers in Christ, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and interested in discipling other people, we should be able to recognize the telltale sign at the murmuring level before it becomes bitterness, and before it spreads an infection throughout the congregation. That should be something that should be the responsibility of each and every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times in the past year, say, have you heard someone murmuring? Now, you see, they may have real need. It may be definite that somebody has cheated them or they've been left out or they asked 16 times to be put on the mailing list and it didn't get on the mailing list. Uh, you know, and they, you know, they say, people there just don't love me. I know they don't love me. I can tell they don't love me because I asked 16 times to be put on the mailing list and I'm still not on the mailing list and I know now there's a conspiracy to try to keep me off the mailing list. Well, now you're a mature Christian. You know, good and well, there's no conspiracy to keep them off the mailing list. That's just not a fact. It's not true. 
but there sure has been a massive slip-up somewhere along the line after 16 tries. You think you're laughing. You think it doesn't happen? Sure it happens. Things just like that all the time. But the thing you have to do is instead of allowing the murmuring to keep on going and even become a part of it so it turns to bitterness, you begin to see I can get involved in seeing that the problem's solved. Usually something like uh, 16 requests to be on the mailing list, you know, it's usually a very simple matter. A call to the office will probably take care of it, especially if you tell the secretary that this person's requested it 16 times and still isn't there. You know, it's a very simple matter. And suddenly we get a letter of apology from the secretary saying, I don't know how we slipped up, but somehow we did. And uh, we checked around and we found that your address graph plate was underneath the machine and has been there for six years, you know. And that's, uh, you know, things like that can happen. But, but I mean, it's, just, it's just such a simple solution on this stage. I'll tell you something. It is not a simple solution when it gets down to this level where many are defiled. It is not a simple solution. In fact, it becomes impossible sometimes to deal with it on this level. And there are many, many people who get involved in the bitterness who are not really a part of the problem or a part of the solution. It's just that they were innocent bystanders caught up in the thing. And so we, we go and we call on a fellow who has expressed interest in the things of the Lord and was trying to win him to, to Christ. And we find out that he's got this chip on his shoulder 40 feet wide simply because of something that happened 20 years ago in a church. You talk to him, and you know what you find out? You find out that the guy was not part of the problem, and he wasn't part of the solution. All he was was an innocent bystander who got caught up in the furor of the many being defiled by bitterness of other people. That's tragic. That's the way that this was headed. Now, the solution to the problem was that the leaders took, took action. Of course, in order to take action, there had to be... There had to be... A, uh, a recognition of the need. There had to be a sensitivity to that need. Or there had to be others that were sensitive and then honest enough to talk to those who could do something about the problem. Never talk to somebody who's not a part of the problem or part of the solution. It just doesn't make any sense. The thing that makes sense is to communicate with those that are able to do something about it. But the way they communicated was wrong. You say, how do you know that? I'll tell you how I know simply because of the response of the leadership. Notice what it says here. It says that the twelve called the multitude of disciples onto them and said, it is not fitting that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now you know what happened, just from that, from what, you know it's at least implied, what must have happened. Somebody came to them and they said, you apostles are the leaders of this church. Now listen, those widows are being neglected. And you should be out there making sure that it's done right. You're the leaders. You're responsible. Guess what? Not true. Now the leaders were responsible to solve the problem, to deal with the problem. But the leaders were not responsible to leave their primary ministry to accomplish that which is the work of the saints. It was not their responsibility to upset the apple cart and go in like a bull in a china shop and take over something that was to be the ministry of the saints. 
I loved what Oski Smolsey brought me back from Hawaii. He brought me back a bulletin, and on the top of it, it said, Ministers. And then, Helper to the Ministers. Ministers? All the people, or all the believers. Helper to the ministers, Pastor Steele. That's it. We here at Valley Church believe in equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. It is not fitting that we should leave the word of God and wait on tables. The responsibility of the minister, the one we generally think of as the pastor of a local congregation, responsibility of the staff of the local congregation, is not doing the work of the ministry. The responsibility is to teach the word of God. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You say, well, do you mean to say you don't do any ministry? Well, you've got to realize that I wear two hats. As the pastor of this church, no. As pastor of this church, I equip saints for the work of the ministry. I study 50 to 60 hours a week. Every week. That starts me out. In addition to that, administration counseling, premarital counseling, marrying people, burying people, a lot of other things that just somehow gets accumulated down here, all right? What do I do in my spare time? Oh, lots of things. I don't sleep, I'll tell you that. I have operated on uh, four, three, three, yeah, three and a half hours sleep last night. So if I look a little bleary-eyed, you'll get the idea, all right? That is my responsibility. But my other hat is that I'm also a part of this congregation, and I happen to love the people in this congregation. So every chance I get, I try to minister to them as one of them. And that's why once in a while, when the Lord permits, we go to the hospital, see people that are sick. We don't promise them we're coming, but if we can make it, we try to make it as often as possible. You find out somebody's sick in the hospital, don't call me. You go, because if God brought it to your attention, God must want you to go. It's amazing how many people have the idea the pastor ought to be doing more. That's fine. I'll let you take my schedule, and I'll take yours anytime you say. You just let me know. I'll be glad. That's no problem with me at all. Now, the point is that we, as the workers within the body of Jesus Christ, have to realize our place of ministry. And I was so pleased, you know, as I studied through this passage to realize anew and afresh that the thing that the apostles said was that great, big, difficult word for pastors to say, spelled N-O. No. You see, that's one of the things that it's taken me years. In fact, I had to come to the place of almost uh, a breakdown in my physical health uh, when I was up in the state of Washington before I began to really believe what I'd been preaching all along. 
that one man cannot take the burden of all of the ministry of the local church and do it the way God expects it to be done. It's impossible. So therefore, I had to put a new word in my vocabulary. I was one of these guys, not a yes man in the usual sense of the word, but if anybody asked me to do anything, I'd say yes. Can you come over? Yes. Can you do, go call on this person? Yes. Can you do this? Yes. And so, because I, I, I had a conviction concerning the discipline of the study of the Word of God, I would study into the wee hours of the morning and get all my studying done and then go like a chicken with a head cut off all during the day. Gloria and I called on every person in our congregation four times a year when we first started out. That wasn't too bad when there were 35 people. But you see, within a few weeks, we were over 100. Within a few months, we were over 200. And we were going out, knocking on doors. We called in every single visitor that came into that church. He got a call from us and also one from lay people. We went just on and on and on. You know when the most rapid and best growth of our church came? When I learned to say no. When I learned to say no, when people would say, will you? And I would say no before they even got out of their mouth. I would say, that is not in the list of my major priorities at this time. I'll pray for you as you go, as you do that. People come along and they say, I've got a great idea, Pastor. Now what they really meant by that is we got this whole program laid out and if you'll just carry it out, everybody's going to be happy. And I had said to them before they got off the ground, I'm sorry, but you want to know something? If God has given this vision, then you carry it out. And I challenge you to show me from the Word of God where it should be anything else. Because the work of the ministry is to be done by the saints in the pew not by the man who is committed to the responsibility of studying and teaching the Word of God. Now, that is, of course, the first thing that you see as you go through there, that they had learned to say no, but that did not mean that they dropped the ball. You see, it's not a matter of, uh, when you say no, of not taking an active interest in the things that are burdens upon the heart of the people. It rather is a matter of helping them solve their problem. And if they can solve their problem, they will be more enthusiastic than ever to motivate other people to expand that ministry. So, we have the fact that they didn't take sides, they didn't play favorites at all. They just simply called the multitude of the disciples together, the whole group together, made the announcement, no, we will not do it. But, they said, we're going to tell you what to do. By the way, the word serve there is the word diaconia. The same word that elsewhere in scripture is translated deacon. And as near as we can tell, this would be the first board of deacons, if you please, although it did not operate 
like so many of our boards do today, most of our boards could be spelled B-O-R-E-D. This was more an active working, uh, active working responsibility that they had. And they, they said, we can't do that, but we're going to choose others that can. All right. They confronted the whole company with this. And um, they, they realized the importance of it. So they said in verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, that would be the whole, uh, it would be the, now the, the uh, leadership or the cream of the crop uh, involved here in all likelihood uh, because it, 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 in this case, is probably used as a, in the male sense of the word. And so there undoubtedly were those that were a part of that leadership group already. Wherefore, brethren, look among you for seven men. All right? Look among the believers. That First of all, that would be the first qualification they give here. Believers. And they are to be men. And they are to be reputable. They are to be those that have honest report. They were to be spiritual. They were to be full of the Holy Spirit. They were to be wise. They were to be full of wisdom. Now notice, it says, whom we, not you, but we may appoint over this matter. They are not relinquishing leadership. They are simply saying, you give some suggestions of men that you think would fit into this ministry category. And then we will appoint them to this responsibility. And usual apostolic authority there. Appointed by the leaders themselves. So, they, they uh, say in verse 4, in contrast to that, we're going to keep our priorities straight. We will give ourselves continually, that just about takes your whole day, continually does. Now notice what they're going to do. They're going to pray and they're going to have the ministry of the word. And that, my friends, is the main job of a pastor. Clearly. Throughout scripture, that was the pattern. You notice there's no visitation. There's no hospital visitation. There's no... uh, there is no uh, responsibility there in, uh, in reference to uh, uh, even a lot of the ticky-tacky little details. You know, I used to, uh, when I was in Lacey, we started out in a little old building before the Lord gave us another one. And it had one of these, uh, one of these, these uh, oil stoves, you know, with a barrel outside the window. I don't know. None of these Californians probably ever heard of that. You know, but some of you people that come from some of the cold country remember those things. We had a kind of a furnace in the basement that took care of the basement heat, a hand-dug basement in that old building. And, um, and we, had a, uh, we had a stove upstairs uh, that was like that old oil stove that just sits in the middle of the floor there. And they were terrible to start. Oh, just, just awful. So every Sunday morning, I would go over and um, I would start those fires so that we'd have heat and uh, come back home with soot up to my elbows every single week, you know. First couple times I went over, I wore my suit, which wasn't too popular with my wife. 
But uh, after that, I learned my lesson and wore my old clothes. Went over a little earlier and got the thing going. And uh, then came back and got cleaned up and ready to go. And uh, time after time, I did that. Until the Lord, you know, provided some leadership within the church. And we began to train men to do some of these things and so on. And uh, my wife uh, cleaned the toilets. And, uh, you know, all of these things. You know, we had some great joy in those days in doing that kind of thing. Because we were needed. We, didn't, we only had five men in the church when we started out. And uh, some of them were not too faithful. And so it was, it was hard to, to find leadership. I couldn't ask a woman to go over there and start that fire. I could ask my wife to clean the toilets, but I couldn't ask any other woman to do that. You know, And so the, 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 the thing was that we, we ministered that way. Now we have no grudge against that at all. None at all. And if I had to do it today, I wouldn't care. I would be glad to do it again. But for one thing, and that is the primary purpose of the pastor has to be the preparation of a spiritual menu for the people. Otherwise, guess what happens? An unhealthy, unfed congregation will automatically just get weaker and weaker and weaker and the pastor will have to do more and more and more and more and more and there's no end in sight. And as I said, when we began to learn to say no and get our priorities straight so we had our energy, not just giving God the leftover time, the early morning hours, the late night hours to get into the Word, but the very best of my time given to the study of the Word of God. When that came about and the men of the church picked up the ball and went with it, that was when the Lord began to bless and multiply the ministry because they were a strong congregation ministering one to the other. Now this is the New Testament pattern. I realize that we have gone far from this today. But you want to know, I really got my eyes open when we were in Scotland. It was something that, that just gripped me so clearly. Because for 50 years, those people have had the attitude, let George do it. Guess what? George can't. We were in a church with a dear pastor by the name of George. Poor guy, you know. He virtually does everything in that church. Everything. Has no time left over to study the Word of God. So his people starve and he works his head off. He is as devoted a man as you would ever find. But he's not feeding his people. And the reason he's not feeding his people is because they won't let him study. And he's been doing this for a number of years. And the church just dwindles and dwindles and dwindles. And he's so discouraged. He lit up like a Christmas tree when I began to share what the Word of God says about this principle. And I told him the people at Valley Church believe it. And they're living proof and living evidence that it works. And you are. 
But you see, the marvelous thing is that if we will mobilize the lay leadership in the local congregation to do the work of the ministry, then we will see a dynamic result. Just look at it a little further. I want to say, first of all, that in verse 5, the first part, it says, the saying pleased the whole multitude. There was a unity of spirit as the people began. And, of course, that's necessary. You can't, you can't say a thing like this to a divided people. That's why you don't go in necessarily into a, into a congregation of people who, uh, who have been uh, mistaught all their lives and suddenly hit them right between the eye with this. The average person in the average church has been taught all their life that the clergy is up here and you're down here and anything you can't, people can't serve communion unless they're ordained and they can't do baptisms unless they're ordained and a lot of other foolishness that really isn't biblical at all. And uh, so therefore it's all become a professional club and it doesn't work, Right? But you see, the, ne the necessity is for the kind of confidence in leadership that will say amen to a concept like this. And that's what this congregation did. Of course, you've got to realize they were brand new Christians, didn't know any better. So they just believed what God was teaching them, all right? And some of us are so sophisticated, we know it all. We've been raised in, in a church all our life where the pastor just did everything, and that's the way it ought to be. Mind you, uh, when I say all these things, I'm not trying to get out of work. I just want more work. That's all. Praise the Lord. I'm teaching nine classes a week now. Let's go for 13, shall we? Great. <laughs> all right. Now, it says the saying pleased the whole multitude. There was a unity about it. Notice they chose out seven men. And all seven of the men had Greek names. Nicholas wasn't even born a Jew. He was a proselyte. Okay? Got the picture? Who's griping? Who's griping? Who's murmuring? Who's complaining? All these Greeks. All these, these uh, Hellenistic Jews. These, these Greek-speaking Jews. And in their Greek language, they're whispering. Psst, 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 psst. Guess who got chosen? The whispers. Now there's the solution to your problem. In the church so often, it's the person who... The person... Uh, the, the, the wheel that, that squeaks the loudest gets the most grease. You know, that's just a general principle of church operation. guy that screams the loudest, he's the guy that gets the attention. It's not the way they handled that. What they did was, the wheel that squeaked the loudest, they gave him the most work. Isn't that great? They appointed these men to have a fair distribution of all of this. And they were Greek men. They were Hellenistic men. They were men, all of which had Greek names. Now, the leaders then took them aside and ordained them. It says, verse 6, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. They ordained them publicly to the ministry of waiting on tables. Distribution of food within the congregation. They ordained them to that. Where do you get this funny, fuzzy idea that ordination is only for the pastor who's set apart to preach the word? When a person takes on a responsibility of this proportion, he should be set before the leadership of the church and they should put their hands on him. Do you know why? Because there is no dichotomy as to what is 
what is secular work and what is spiritual work. It is just as important for you to make a hospital visit as it is for me to study the Word of God and teach it. The two are interrelated because one should be the outgrowth of the other. I like that verse in James where it says, Pure religion and undefiled is to visit. Pure religion and undefiled is, is to visit. Now, how many of you want to have pure religion and undefiled? You fell right into it, didn't you? Some of you didn't raise your hands because you knew it was coming. That's all right. Then get out and visit. In particular, it's the, those that have specific needs. Visit the widows and orphans. Now, there are others that have specific needs in our economy today, but that was the emphasis by James there. And so, therefore, anybody who has a particular need, get out and visit them. That's pure religion and undefiled. Guess what? That's why I visit people. Not because I have a lot of time on my hands and I just like to go up and chat. It's partially because, just because I love you. But it's also because I want to have pure religion undefiled, so I'm involved. But it's not my job. Just keep that in mind, all right? So get out and visit and get some of the blessing be set apart to that kind of ministry. What happens as a result? Look at verse 7. The word of the Lord or the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now of course in verse 8 it says Stephen who was one of these men full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Someone told me a long time ago, and I really resent this, but I repeat it so you know how badly I resent it, all right? But they said that the reason that Stephen got killed was because he was a deacon doing elders' business. That isn't true. You know what he was? He was a deacon doing deacon business. That's what he was doing. There's nothing wrong with a deacon preaching. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with continuing to minister in other ways. The difference was this. The apostles, the deacons, they each had, whoops, want to put it the other way. They each had a primary ministry, which was the word and a secondary ministry, which had to do with the work. Various things that would be accomplished, as they had time. The deacons, on the other hand, had their work as a primary ministry, and the word was a secondary ministry. That's all it is. And every one of you have this responsibility if you don't have this responsibility. And there are a lot more of you than there are of these, that is, in this case, the elders, which supersede the apostles because there's no apostolic succession. Philip was another one of them. He went down to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, and he ministered. And there was great result there. What really happened was this. Number one, and this is the, the key and the secret to the solving of that problem, there was first of, and, and the success afterward, first of all, unity was restored. 
Secondly, the word was given priority. Thirdly, the saints did the work of the ministry. Result, success with a capital S. It can, it'll be true in any church anywhere. When these three things are there, there's a unity of spirit because there's the, the, the problems have been solved and there's a unity of mind. Secondly, the word is given priority and the saints are doing the work of the ministry. You can't help but have success from the biblical point of view. That's how the early church dealt with their strife. I hope that you also will deal with strife. I hope that you will make yourself a committee of one, that when there's murmur and complaint that you'll head it off before it gets to the bitterness level, and at the same time you will do it in a biblical manner, keeping priorities clear. Now I really, I really think that it's, it's vitally important in a church like ours, especially where, we, where we're growing so rapidly and new people are coming in. And I preached uh, uh, something similar to this a number of years ago. Uh, we'll get to it when we get to the fourth chapter uh, of, uh, of, of the book of Ephesians sometime down in the millennium there. Uh, you know, we'll get to it again where it talks about equipping saints for the work of the ministry. We go over this and over this from time to time, but right after we preach the message, some new people come in. They don't understand. They come from churches where, where the biblical concept of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry is not taught. They come in and they look around and they expect the pastor, well, what's the pastor do? You know, what's he supposed to be doing? I mean, after all, all he does is stand up there and preach and things like that. He, he never goes out of his office. I, I came in my office about 6 o'clock yesterday morning and never left that office. I should I take that back. I left the office for 15 minutes, about 6.30, but then never left that office until after 1 o'clock last night. Never went out of the room. I was studying and then had an elders meeting. The elders meeting is the thing that went to 1 o'clock. But the point is that that is where I am. And my secretaries didn't see me. My staff didn't see me because I had a big load of study. So I got a lot done. Praise the Lord for an uninterrupted day. When you call the church, some of these people, you know, that don't understand this, they call, they, they think that the pastor's got all day to chit-chat. Sorry. I don't. I, de- I take very few phone calls. See? Why? Because it's a matter of priority. Where to get the job done? Then it takes that cooperative spirit. So what do you need to do? You need to be my representative, the representative of the Board of Elders, out there in the congregation, every time you hear the grumble, why didn't the pastor come and see me? You say, ah, let me share with you a verse of Scripture. And then share with them. And talk to them. And tell them what God's Word says concerning this. Take them to Acts chapter 6. Take them to Ephesians chapter 4. And explain to them that the those who are are on the paid staff of the church, 
are those who are involved in the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. What they're talking about is the work of the ministry. And the saints are to be involved in that. We try to pick up the slack wherever we can. We want to be a part of you and you a part of us in every possible way. But can't you see how exciting it is? Where we as believers cooperate together to bring that which will glorify God in the fellowship of the church. I get all goosebumply just thinking about what the potential is. I hope you do too. All right. Next week, Bud Schaefer. Then get into some practical things in regard to discipleship. And uh, the, not that this hasn't been practical up to now, I'm sure, but there are going to be some very uh, how-to steps that we can take the following week. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, the provision you've made in Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord. We pray that you would just undertake for us and give to us the wisdom of your Holy Spirit in carrying out these things that are so much a part of our church. Help us, Lord, to each one head off strife, head it off by hitting at the murmuring level before it becomes bitterness, before it infects others. And help us to be faithful in that regard. And then, Lord, help us all to keep our priorities straight and accomplish the purpose that you have for us. We'll praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Lord bless you. Good night.